Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. I'm Arthur Snell. In the first three episodes of this series, we looked at the background to this conflict, this war that began in 2014 in Crimea and the Donbass. For Putin, the annexation of Crimea really was something where he felt he he had outfoxed the West. And then those desperate days last February as the Russians nearly took Kyiv. I think people don't necessarily appreciate how close run it was in the first few hours and how fortunate we were. And how Russia wrought terror upon the Ukrainian population. We saw that uh, our own eyes, how the military jets were bombing the hospitals. We saw by own eyes how uh, the Russian tanks were all on the street and shooting directly to the residential buildings. And why are they doing this? Why it's happening? In those first days last February, the Ukrainians showed that they were going to stand and fight. I need ammunition, not a ride, President Zelensky said after being offered an evacuation by the Americans. And so began something almost as unexpected as Ukraine's resilience against the Russian onslaught, an unprecedented moment of unity and purpose across much of the democratic world, determined to support Ukraine in its hour of need. When this war this invasion started, uh, and I, I saw in news, and then all the videos started, started coming. Seeing this all, and also see, uh, having this past experiences from Georgia, my soul, my, my mind, everything, all the values and morals really pushed me to the point that uh, you gotta go. In Ukraine, actually, we had... In, in, in not far from Bakhmut, a missile hit a building, and then we, we ran there. It was a residential building. So what the, at one point, a guy was speaking with us from the rubble. He was buried. So we were trying to dig, dig all the rubble, free the rubble, and free him. And suddenly, suddenly, in one second, the rubble just went down, and he stopped talking to us. So for another four hours until the morning, we kept digging, and then they found his body eventually, because he just died in, in, in our hands, so to say. So these things, uh, you know, they, all these things push you really to, yeah, that's it. You got you to sacrifice, you got to do something to stop that, because imagine this uh, un, so-called undefeated uh, second army in the world and largest country in the entire planet, on the entire planet. For the civilized world, imagine to allow Russia to win, it, it will mean that Russia actually has managed to defeat entire Europe and America, Canada. So Russia will become more aggressive, more confident, and really unstoppable with, with, with this aggression. And next country will be what? Baltic countries, Poland, who will stop it? 
Since the start of the Cold War in the 1950s, a group of countries have prepared reluctantly for the possibility of a major war against Russia. These countries, mostly in Europe and the North Atlantic, are usually liberal democracies and capitalist economies. All of them are allied to the United States, and they call themselves collectively the West, even though this includes Japan, South Korea, Australia and New Zealand. Some have argued that the West provoked Russia, leaving it feeling encircled and threatened by NATO expansion. But this is to repeat uncritically Russia's rhetoric. Indeed, this was the subject of President Putin's speech at Russia's misnamed Victory Day Parade on the 9th of May this year. Russia's full-scale invasion of Ukraine was not an isolated incident or a bolt from the blue. It followed a decades-long pattern of escalation. But throughout this period, the West might complain or criticise Russian behaviour, but it did very little in practical terms to stop it. If Ukraine, Europe's largest country after Russia itself, wasn't safe from a full-scale Russian invasion, why assume that Poland or the Baltic states with their large Russian-speaking populations were also safe? When Putin made the fateful decision to try to end the independence of Ukraine, he was also sending a message to the West. You guys aren't serious. You failed in Iraq. You got kicked out of Afghanistan. And you aren't going to do anything to try to stop me now. Putin's assumptions were reasonable. For decades, countries in Europe had been underinvesting in their defence, preferring to rely on America, all the while buying Russia's energy exports and providing the Russian kleptocrats with money laundering services. Putin had been given plenty of reasons to believe that the West would do the same when he invaded Ukraine. But like so much else that has happened since February last year, he called this one very wrong. After years of letting Russia bully and threaten its neighbours, finally, in 2022, the West woke up. This is Doomsday Watch, Season 4, Episode 4. Europe in Shock. My name is Liana Fix. I'm a fellow for Europe at the Council on Foreign Relations in Washington, D.C. Yeah, it's interesting that Europe always considered itself to be this kind of peace project after the end of the Second World War to prevent the return of war amongst its members. So the idea that was there in the past about Europe, that Europe is this kind of postmodern entity which really um, does not need to care about military power, that was just the lucky situation that Europe was in after the end of the Cold War. And now it is finding and training its geopolitical muscle and has become a project which is dedicated to supporting Ukraine and to supporting Ukraine in its war. Europe needs Ukraine as a shield against Russia. And that's the role that Ukraine will play in the future. It will continuously be armed by the West and it will 
keep Russia away and out of Europe. And that's basically the function that, that Ukraine will fulfill. It's important to take on board what Liana says there. There is a grain of truth to what Russian propagandists say about this war. The West is a participant, fully mobilized, to quote Liana. Europe has realized that it needs Ukraine to succeed if we are to remain secure in our own countries. And so, to that extent, we are supplying Ukraine because by fighting a war with Russia, it means that we won't have to. But this risks underestimating the scale of what is happening. In the 12 months from around the time of Putin's invasion to February this year, Western countries spend about $170 billion on support to Ukraine, both military and civilian aid, an unprecedented commitment. The bulk of this has come from the United States, but other countries have made commitments that are, relative to their size, even more significant. But perhaps the biggest story of all is the way that the West has shifted its entire strategic agenda after years of letting the Kremlin get away with it to supporting Ukraine and containing Russia. And for all the talk of off-ramps and ceasefires, at this stage the West is not, in the middle of 2023, pressuring the Ukrainians to sue for peace. Because to do so with Russia occupying about a third of Ukraine and a million of its people is to reward Putin for his military aggression. Ukrainian political scientist Maria Zolkina has been researching the conflict since 2014. Ukrainian society has a very clear picture of how this conflict should be ended. It should be ended with entire decupation of Ukrainian territories, including those occupied in 2014, namely Crimea and part of the Donbass. It's very important that the other way won't be accepted uh, as a legitimate victory of Ukraine. It's um, fair for 55-56% of Ukrainian society as of now. And in addition to those 55%, we have more than 20% who goes even more radical way and say that until Russian forces aren't devastated to the possible minimum, there won't be victory uh, as well. Right. We're talking now just a bit more than one year, the 14 months after the full-scale invasion. One of the things that's emerged just in the last couple of weeks has been these leaks from the US from, from this intelligence, um, well, this junior guy who had intelligence documents. And of course, there's been discussion about the, the number of Ukrainian casualties. Of course, the number is still much lower than Russia. How do you think that affects this question of resilience? Of course, number of casualties might influence the internal resistance and resilience of the state and, and of society. But Ukrainians are more than anyone else interested in finishing the conflict as soon as possible. So protected conflict, freezing in the current front line, is the less desirable scenario both for Ukrainian society and political and military leadership. But resilience will directly depend on the level of support. Uh, and the expected counteroffensive in 2023 is directly dependent on how many weapons of specific types will be given to Ukraine. Because we know that from human resources point of view, Ukraine has been preparing 12 brigades, uh, especially for counteroffensive. And thanks for UK, for instance, for Poles and for other partners of Ukraine, this was made possible. 
But all those dozens of thousands of people have to ride specific vehicles. They have to be able to shirt with specific weapons. If there will be not enough weapons for those prepared brigades, then counteroffensive won't be successful and how resistant are we for the next months? Der 24. Februar 2022 markiert eine Zeitenwende in der Geschichte unseres Kontinents. Russia's war in Ukraine has bought the world a new Germanic loanword, Zeitenwende, a historical turning point, the start of a new era. And the degree to which that previously obscure word is now widely understood tells us just how much has changed. We heard in episode one how the West tried to manage the relationship with Putin's Russia, largely by appeasing it economically whilst imposing token sanctions and making empty statements. All the while, these Western countries were focused on their forever wars in Afghanistan, the Middle East and the Sahel, whilst worrying about a potential conflict with China. And yet Putin was building up his invasion force on the borders of Ukraine. But 2022 marked the shift. At the end of that year, I spoke to the New Statesman's editor-at-large, Jeremy Cliff, discussing an article he had written about French President Emmanuel Macron. Jeremy, you recently published a lengthy essay on Emmanuel Macron and his approach to global affairs. And um, if I can quote from that, Macron's approach to foreign policy starts from the conviction that ours is a chaotic, dangerous and Hobbesian world. He's right, isn't he? Yes, actually. And that's one of the conclusions I come to in, in that essay, that much as one can criticise elements of Macron's foreign policy and his approach, I think he's right. And, and, and in fact, the French political establishment has been right for quite a while about in how it sees the world, economic and industrial resilience, the sort of uncertainties about the transatlantic reliance, the fragility of globalisation. Yeah. And you could have question that analysis before the invasion of Ukraine. But it's, in a way, it's impossible now to look at the so-called rules-based international order and believe that it still functions. Mm. And by the way, I'm coming at this from as someone who's, who's in Berlin, where the events of the last year have been harder to get heads around than, than I think in Paris. You know, Germany did very well out of the post-Cold War order, was very comfortable in a world of deepening trade, multilateralism, and a supposedly united and peaceful Europe. One of the points that I make, I've been making recently is that the death this year that caused the most ructions in Germany or that hit hardest in Germany internationally was not that of Queen Elizabeth II, but of Mikhail Gorbachev. Right. Because I think Gorbachev for Germans symbolizes what felt like the kind of resolution of German history and the country's place in the, in the center of Europe between East and West. Yeah, particularly, I suppose, because he died as a marginalized and rather, you know, a figure without influence in his own country. Mm, mm. That challenges the German instinct to build bridges to Russia, which is something very deep and I think goes beyond. I mean, sometimes the German-Russian relationship is written up as, some, as, as purely a question of trade and oil and gas. And of course, those have been major factors with things like the Nord Stream pipelines. Yeah. I really think to understand it and understand why even now and even after the so-called Zeitenwende, there mm. is still this kind of 
this sort of underlying urge to sit down at the table with Vladimir Putin to create some, as, as they call it, a new security architecture for Russia. It's it's more than just trade and energy. It's something quite deep rooted in the German, almost the German soul, really. But foreign policy is never that simple. You might have a Zeitenwende, but the turning point doesn't happen overnight. To borrow another German word, we still have Realpolitik. As much as Europe's leaders hate what Putin has done in Ukraine, they still have electorates and economic policies that need to be managed. And they still need something that Russia has a lot of. Energy. In an earlier series of this podcast, we heard from Cambridge professor Helen Thompson, whose book Disorder detailed how a struggle for energy security dragged Europe toward Russia, which supplied nigh on a quarter of Europe's gross available energy at the start of this decade and around half of its imported natural gas. Putin was ready to use this energy weapon as Russia's war on Ukraine failed in the initial invasion phase and dragged on toward winter 2022. The calculation in the Kremlin was that, as the temperatures fell across the continent, we would turn back towards Russia and its ample supplies of natural gas. But in fact, Putin's endless attempts at blackmail seemed to have backfired. It was surprising that Putin used the energy weapon that he had in a way which led to an even faster decoupling of Europe from Russian energy than initially planned. The German plan was to end the dependence on Russian gas uh, by some point in mid-2025. But Russia pressured so much on the energy questions that Germany actually had to move much faster. Russia tried to finish the Nord Stream 2 pipeline ahead of the war as fast as possible. It has emptied German gas storages on purpose, which were owned by Gazprom and which were sold to Gazprom by Germany before. And in the end, Germany had to wean itself off from Russian gas in 2022 because at some point Russia just stopped supplying this gas. So by over-pressuring Germany and Europe on the energy issue, Russia actually accelerated Europe's and Germany's decoupling from Russian energy. Some of you may have seen those rather unsubtle Russian propaganda videos in which a Western European shivering in his ill-heated apartment is shown a vision of warmth and beauty beckoning from Moscow. But it didn't actually work out like that. Although the cost of living was shooting up and there's been plenty of dissatisfaction with Europe's politicians, a year in, support for Ukraine across much of Europe has remained remarkably high. But as we heard from Maria Zolkina, Ukraine remains desperate for the weaponry it requires to be able to continue the fight and, crucially, regain territory from Russia. This was the message I heard when I was in Kyiv in April 2023. For example, Ukraine is seriously worried about running out of ammunition and it isn't clear whether Europe has the capacity to manufacture it fast enough 
whatever the good intentions it might have of keeping Ukraine supplied. Remember the months it took to persuade the Germans to supply Leopard tanks, and they would only do so once the US had agreed to offer its own vehicles. These factors all slow down Ukraine's planning, training and equipping of its army to be able to take back and hold territory. So it's a fair question to ask, has this Zeitenwender really happened? The Zeitenwende is still real, because what the Zeitenwende is, is there are three elements to that. It's increasing Germany's own defense spending, it is supporting Eastern flank countries, and it is supporting Ukraine. And Germany is, after the UK, the second biggest contributor to Ukraine in financial, military, and humanitarian terms. There is a build-up of German military power, but that build-up does not equal military leadership in Europe. And that's why the tank episode has been so frustrating, because the fact that Germany relied so heavily on the United States waiting until the United States gave the green light for its own tanks before moving ahead, although the United Kingdom offered itself as a wingman to Germany, basically, and said, well, we are also delivering our tanks, so why why don't we go ahead together? Um, this was quite a disappointment. And it can be understood if one looks at you know Germany's history that there's this risk averseness in German policy making. The, the glass is still half full, half empty. Diana, so does this really come down to history? The legacy of World War II just affects the way that Germany deals with these issues. It's an argument that is often made and which I find uh, a little bit superficial and naive just to say, well, the slowness of German politics versus the military power can only be explained by its history and by Germany's tradition of pacifism. After the the end of the Second World War, Germany was well able to rearm because it was the frontline state at that time. And the historical excuse was quite a convenient fig leaf for a long time to not respond to the expectations of allies saying, well, do our European partners actually want Germany to spend 2% or would that not bring up past memories of German military in Europe of, of the Second World War? As of now, European allies have become quite outspoken in saying, well, no, that's actually fine with us. We would prefer a strong Germany leading in Europe. But there are still some constraints in the German public, especially the tank debate has raised some memories of Leopard tanks um, in, in the east of Europe. And it's quite interesting that actually Vladimir Putin himself picked those constraints up in a recent speech that he gave. And when he said that 80 years later, now again, Leopard tanks are rolling towards Russia. So he knows how to play these historical memories. So there was, there was something to it, especially when it comes to public opinion in Germany. But when it comes to policymaking and the German elites, pacifism as, as an explanation or to Germany's history has been very much a fig leaf in, in the last years. And how about France? Their history, of course, is very different, but they also seem to have a complicated stance on all of this. Yeah, France played a special role because it always considered itself to be a great power on par with Russia. It shared the kind of great power outlook on the world um, that, to some extent, Russia also had, and therefore it considered itself to be the kind of leader in Europe that would be best positioned to, to talk to Russia. France even had a strategic dialogue with Russia before the war where it discussed security issues in Europe 
And it always had the ambition to have a European strategic autonomy. Um, this concept was regarded very skeptically by Central Eastern Europeans because they felt it was meant to um, exclude the United States. And Central Eastern Europeans never really fully believed um, France's uh, commitment to European security. So when France started to support Ukraine, there was statements coming from Macron which were confusing. For instance, saying that Russia should not be humiliated, that Russia also needs security guarantees, which might be a useful way to think about the broader European security architecture in confidential meetings behind closed doors, but which is perhaps not the ideal wording in, in wartime. Uh, in, the, in the same way, Macron's statement that NATO is brain dead before the war has also raised suspicion with Central and Eastern Europeans. So France is caught in this leadership dilemma when it wants to lead Europe, but actually has no one um, who's following France. It feels like there's a kind of split between West and Eastern Europe, and, and it's the Eastern Europeans, the ones that are closer to Russia geographically, who feel it really viscerally. Is that right? Yeah, Central and Eastern Europeans had an incredibly difficult position before 2014 and also after 2014 because they were considered, especially by France and Germany, as as, as Cassandra, swarding against Russia, um, but were always perceived as, as too hawkish. And it then turned out that those countries actually understood Russia much better than Germany and France did. So we had this one moment when all these countries and Europeans were on the same page immediately after the outbreak of the war. And it was very clear that, well, who, who was right and who was wrong. But the longer the war continued, the more we saw how these perspectives have diverged. So. From a Central and Eastern European perspective, Russia needs to lose this war decisively. Otherwise, we will see, or they consider it likely, from a German and French perspective, um, a too tough approach. So if Putin loses too decisively in Ukraine, they are concerned that this could lead to an escalation rather than Putin not losing decisively. speak plainly. A permanent member of the United Nations Security Council invaded its neighbor, attempted to erase a sovereign state from the map. Russia has shamelessly violated the core tenets of the United Nations Charter. President Putin has made overt nuclear threats against Europe and a reckless disregard for the responsibilities of the non-proliferation regime. This world should see these outrageous acts for what they are. Underlying all of this is the fear of escalation. The only serious argument against supporting Ukraine is the possibility that Russia might turn its war into a nuclear conflict. That's something they've been threatening everyone for years. 
literally since NATO's first major expansion eastwards in 1997. Even previously liberal Russians have jumped into this. Just look at Dmitry Medvedev, former president and prime minister, who is threatening that the UK will disappear under a tsunami created by Russian nuclear weapons. Maria Zolkina has been talking to European governments about Ukraine's fight back since the outbreak of the full-scale invasion and is familiar with the effects of Putin's threats. It exists in the background and I'm familiar with all these talks because I am participating since since last February and even before that in expert diplomacy, talking to decision makers in various capitals uh, in Europe. But I have to say that position on Crimea has been changing a little bit because as of now, as you can see, that regardless of these behind-closed-door talks, official rhetorics has been significantly changed. They are starting saying that the occupation of Crimea is a part of the deal. Uh, they still doubt that unofficially uh, and don't know whether they will support Ukraine up to that end. The second point in this regard is that Ukraine should be underlined. This is a security issue. Right now, Russia has announced that they are going to deploy nuclear, uh, tactical nuclear weapons on Belarus territory. I have been claiming with my colleagues that uh, Belarus is not the main issue in this regard. Russia is testing right now whether West will react somehow to this kind of deployment because this, the real major step Russia is preparing to is to deploy tactical nuclear weapons in Crimea. The debate has raged on whether or not Putin will utilise his nuclear arsenal. But it's clear the terrible power at his disposal has had an impact. And of course, that is the point. That's why Russia can invade a neighbouring country and not face a concerted international coalition ranged against it on the battlefield. That's the advantage that a nuclear arsenal gives you. In our previous series, we looked at the state of the nuclear deterrent in the modern age. Here's Ankit Panda from the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace. On the issue of nuclear deterrence in the Ukraine conflict, Look, I mean, the lesson that I've taken away, uh, and I'm actually surprised that, uh, you know, some analysts have walked away looking at what's happening in Ukraine with the opposite takeaway, is that nuclear deterrence is absolutely constraining the behavior of both NATO and Russia. You know, Russia is not attacking NATO supply convoys into Ukraine, despite the fact that NATO is pumping the Ukrainian armed forces with equipment that's being used to maim and kill Russian soldiers. And by the same token, NATO is not establishing a no-fly zone or otherwise conducting strikes on Russian forces. It's, it's a lesson that we learned during the Cold War, which was that proxy conflicts, as long as they do not directly draw the two major nuclear armed superpowers into direct conflict with each other, can be tolerably fought at tolerable levels of risk to the superpower. Right. I'm not talking about tolerable levels of risk for Ukraine or, or necessarily even um, some of the other um, NATO states that border Ukraine uh, who do seem to have a different risk calculus here and might be willing to take on a greater amount of risk. But certainly, I think in Washington and Moscow, uh, nuclear deterrence has you know, worked uh, for all intents and purposes. And I think it's frustrated both countries. For the West, uh, having a greater room of maneuver to help Ukraine would be something that would very much be uh, welcomed. And I think policymakers don't know exactly where that threshold is, which is why I think we've seen some of these debates about the kinds of arms that might be supplied to Ukraine sort of wax and wane. But as things have moved on, uh, you know, those lines have been crossed. The U.S. has given Ukraine now precision strike, ground-launched, multiple-launch rocket systems and the HIMARS, uh, high-mobility artillery rocket system. Uh, but as long as the two sides don't forget that fundamental lesson of the Cold War about the constraining role that nuclear deterrence does have in these kinds of proxy conflicts, I think we'll avoid the worst. 
In the first episode of this series, we heard from Stephen Pfeiffer, former U.S. ambassador to Ukraine. He spent much of his career working on arms control and nuclear non-proliferation. Here's what he had to say. I have to say I, I was a little bit nervous in September about the Russian nuclear threats, but it didn't work. I mean, from the Ukrainian perspective, after they've seen what happened in Mariupol, the decimation of that city after 90 days of Russian bombardment, the atrocities committed in Brucha, Irpin, Borodyanka, and dozens of other cities across Ukraine, they understand what Russian occupation means. And they see this war as existential. Likewise, I think the West responded in the proper way, which was to say, if Russia were to use nuclear weapons, there would be severe consequences and stop at that point. Let the Russians forget what those consequences would be. So it was interesting to me that beginning at the end of October, it seemed that the Russian government made a decision to try to de-escalate the rhetoric. Russian Foreign Minister Lavrov told me that any nuclear threats are inadmissible. So I think the Russians recognized in the fall that the nuclear threats, they weren't working. And I would also argue that for the West to cave to those nuclear threats would only ensure that we would face many more nuclear threats from Moscow in the future. We've been hearing throughout this episode how Ukraine needs weapons to drive out Russia's invading forces. And you have Germany seeing the need for a Titan vendor, France talking of European strategic autonomy. Surely this is the big moment when Europe steps up and takes control of its destiny and its security. Europe acting as one, no longer reliant on America. Here's Liana Fix. So the takeaway for Central and Eastern Europeans is very much we can only rely on the United States, perhaps a little bit on the UK, but France and Germany have not stepped up in the way um, they have hoped. And for France and Germany, the conclusion is, well, the Central and Eastern Europeans are again too forward-leaning and we have to constrain them because of the escalation risks. And that is a problem because in the end it means that everyone is looking towards Washington in this situation in Europe. At the same time, um, I don't think that we can already say that Central and Eastern European countries, or sort of the UK, the Nordic countries, and Central and Eastern European countries are already that powerful that we really see a shift of gravity in Europe towards the East. They're more powerful than they've been before the war, that's true, but they're not powerful enough to assume a leadership role on their own, also because the financial and economic might is still very much with France and Germany. So the United States has such an outsized and such an incredibly successful leadership role that it is able to paper over the differences among those European countries. Um, but the differences persist and, and are actually growing. So despite all we've heard about the decline of US hegemony, the cracks appearing in its own political landscape and the failures of its military invasions in Iraq and Afghanistan, it's still in Washington, D.C. that the real difference and the real decisions are being made. When I was in Bakhmut yesterday, our, our heroes gave me the flag. They asked me to bring this flag to you to the U.S. Congress 
to members of the House of Representatives and Senators whose decisions can save millions of people. So let these decisions be taken. Let this flag stay with you, ladies and gentlemen. This flag is a symbol of our victory. In this war, we stand, we fight, and we will win because we are united, Ukraine, America, and the entire free world. President Volodymyr Zelensky may be the perfect figurehead for America's proxy fight. Stoic, committed, brave, photogenic, taciturn at times, yet inspirational, and fighting Russia in a war. But has America got the appetite to maintain these remarkable levels of support, particularly with the Republican frontrunners Trump and DeSantis so clearly unwilling to throw their support fully behind Ukraine? Stephen Pfeiffer. The Biden administration has articulated two goals, and my guess is these goals are probably shared by most NATO leaders. Is on the one hand, the Biden administration wants to see Ukraine win in this war and to see Russia defeated. But on the other hand, the administration does not want to see a direct NATO-Russia military clash. And I agree, those are the two correct objectives. But if I had to be critical of the administration, I would say that in, in finding the balance between those objectives, the administration has probably come down a little bit too hard on the side of caution. The U.S. Congress approved about $50 billion last year for Ukraine. That was not all for military assistance. Um, a lot of that was for financial assistance for the Ukrainian government because their economy has been badly damaged by the war. Some of the money went basically to replace weapons that the U.S. military had provided, so they're basically refurbishing the American military. Uh, and the argument seems to be that's, that's too high of a cost to bear. I just disagree. I think that given what's at stake for American interests in this war, that that is a worthwhile investment, uh, uh, and it protects American interests such as a stable and secure Europe. Uh, it maintains the American interest in supporting a rule-based international order. And at the end of the day, I worry not a lot, but a little bit about if the Russians win, what does Vladimir Putin do next? Now, he's described this campaign as sometimes recovering historic Russian land, land that once belonged to the Russian Empire. Uh, well, if you look at a map of the Russian Empire, uh, the Russian Empire used to include all of Finland, the Baltic states, and a good chunk of Poland. And I don't think it's a high probability, but I fear it's more than zero. You know, what if he begins to look at other, what he calls, historic Russian land, say, Eastern Estonia? In Ukraine, the United States has to send money and weapons. If Mr. Putin's uh, ambitions go beyond Ukraine to, say, a place like Estonia or Latvia, we're going to be sending uh, money, weapons, and American soldiers. It's better for the United States to stop Russia in Ukraine. And I hope that argument can prevail with the mega wing of the Republican Party. Uh, Ukraine's future is in the Euro-Atlantic family. Ukraine's future is in NATO. All allies agree on that. At the same time, the main focus uh, of the alliance of NATO allies now is to ensure that Ukraine prevails.
is to ensure that Ukraine continues to be a sovereign, independent, democratic nation in uh, Europe. Because that's the only way to also have a meaningful uh, discussion about uh, Ukraine's future uh, membership. That's NATO Secretary General Jens Stoltenberg. And the great irony here is that Putin's war has revitalized and even expanded NATO, even after Trump nearly killed the organization. Ukraine's membership, once in doubt, is now looking ever more likely. It will be a powerful, heavily armed country with a population that has fought a major war. It will, in fact, become the most important military power in Europe and in NATO. The one thing everybody wants to avoid is a direct NATO-Russia clash. But that doesn't stop countries from wanting to join the alliance. NATO membership has never been more popular. Finland joined in April 2023, and Sweden has come off the fence after literally centuries of neutrality. And why? Let's look at Finland, a country with a large defence budget, a huge army, and a long history of focusing its resources to defend itself against Russia, with whom it has a 1,300-kilometre border. Don't forget that Finland fought Russia to a standstill in a war in 1939. I spoke with Jana Korhonen not long after the invasion to hear how his country evolved its security policy based on an idea of studied neutrality. And then came Russia's invasion of its near neighbour. We have assumed for a long time that uh, because we have what we call a NATO option, and there has been this assumption that, uh, that in a crisis, the political leadership would announce that now Finland needs, needs to join NATO, and then the public opinion would shift, because our public opinion has been actually, the majority has been against joining. Uh, but now this changed completely. People in Finland, the commentators, are wondering that uh, this wasn't supposed to happen. And uh, the last poll... Uh, indicated something like 62% of Finns uh, in favor of joining, which is complete reversal of the position just like six months ago. Only 16% of all Finns were against joining. And I think this is quite remarkable because if you ask like a group of Finns what they think about, I, I, I don't think that if you ask uh, 100 Finns that do you want free money, I would say that more than 16 of them would say no thanks. <laughs> So, so this is really, uh, I'm just like, uh, it's hard to describe how uh, unprecedented this kind of uh, un unanimity. So that's, that's something that this is really amazing. I haven't seen like uh, this kind of behavior in my lifetime. The public is really fully on the side of Ukraine and uh, the politicians are too, uh, we understand that they have to be careful. They seem to be fully on board as well. What happened with Finland reminds us of the fundamental question facing Ukraine over its future. Russia is willing to fight a huge war to prevent ordinary Ukrainians from having the choice over whether it joins NATO and the EU at some point. Or, to put it more simply, the choice over whether it joins the West. So that is the ultimate question. Is the West willing to let Ukraine join this club of liberal democracies? Yeah, it seems to me that Russia is fighting a two-front war here. 
Uh, one front is in Ukraine where they're fighting on the battlefield. But of course, you've seen in the last four months, as the Russian military has been unsuccessful on the battlefield, increasingly you've seen the Russian military targeting the civilian infrastructure of Ukraine. So that Ukraine front is one front. The second front of the war, though, is to try to find ways to undermine Western support for Ukraine. Because the Ukrainians are courageous, they're skilled, they're tenacious in fighting, but they do need Western arms, they do need Western ammunition. The likelihood is that the West will continue to back Ukraine, but but there are some reasons for concern. I mean, this has caused economic tensions, economic stress in Europe, and you've seen something emerge in the United States, which we haven't seen in 30 years. For 30 years, support Ukraine for Ukraine was a totally bipartisan issue, Republicans and Democrats alike. What you've seen emerge in the Republican Party, however, over the last eight months is this MAGA wing, and I think it's still a minority view among the Republicans in Congress that is questioning support for Ukraine. It's questioning the expense. There's a concern there that we didn't have, say, a year ago. I look at this war, it seems to me that a long war has no advantage for Ukraine. I mean, it's only going to be more death than destruction for Ukrainians and, and extend the tragedy. But I think from the point of view of the West, the long war may also then bring the challenge of can you sustain support for keeping the flow of weapons and the financials going to Ukraine? This is part of Putin's calculation. He is sure that the West doesn't have the staying power that Russia has. He is sure that it will eventually lose the will to carry on. So is this going to end up being the decisive factor in Russia's favour? Maria Zolkina again. So the good news is that the Western support to Ukraine, military support to Ukraine, has been possessing the positive dynamic. So every month and every quarter of the year, we have been receiving more than we have received before. Uh, the second good piece of news that Ukrainian forces are being equipped and we being armed for their counteroffensive, it's very visible and very simple. So it's we cannot deny that. But the bad or not that good, let's say, piece of news, there is still no consensus among Western partners of Ukraine what to do with Crimea. This is a critical question, which uh, attitude to which will actually influence directly both the military support to Ukraine, their perspectives of counteroffensive and post-war security settlement. With Crimea continuing serving as a military base for Russian naval air forces, uh, possibly deployment of tactical nuclear weapons, uh, Ukraine will not be safe and peaceful settlement or actual sustainable peace won't be possible in the region. So that's why the duration of Crimea is of even more larger importance than any other piece of occupied Ukraine. Until we don't have a consensus on, on Crimea liberation, Ukraine will be still underarmed to uh, conduct any counteroffensive uh, at their best. But it is only once you've spent some time in Ukraine, as I did recently, you begin to understand just how determined its people are to take control of their destiny. Ukraine has decided that it wants to be fully part of Europe. Its people have been willing to die for this. 
whether in the 2014 Euro-Maidan revolution or since last year's Russian invasion. The war has created a dynamic, determined society that is getting stronger, not weaker, as a result. Russia has really picked the wrong fight. Photojournalist Paul Conroy has been on the front line training colleagues after a career documenting conflict. He's seen the Russian way of war before. He knows what is at stake. But I, I, I think it needs, you know, a little bit more decisiveness. You know, they, they, this kind of slow creep of weaponry is something that the Ukrainians struggle to. They're, they're very much of the opinion, give us the tools and we'll finish the job. And, you know, I've seen nothing yet to disprove that. If I say it this way, I think before Butcher and Boradnik, when they discovered, I think before then there was a possibility that Ukraine could have somehow and been brought to some kind of conclusion that involved Crimea or some of the territories. But it, it, there was a, a sea change. I was, I was in Lviv at the time. Rarely do you see such unanimity in people's expression. It was like not an inch. We're taking it all back. And, and at that point, the, the game changed. The Westers, you know, actually, you know, Putin got all of his wishes. The opposite, you know, he's now got NATO supplying this, you know, Finland, Sweden, joining NATO. All the things Putin was against uh, are happening. <laughs> it's just like, wow, you really played this badly. This is just a first draft of history. So much remains uncertain. After all, Last February, the one thing everyone could agree on, including military experts, was that Russia would have little difficulty invading Ukraine. So why has Russia's army proved so ineffective? And what does this tell us about Russian society? Join us next time for episode 5 of Doomsday Watch, The Ukraine War. Russia humiliated. Doomsday Watch is written and presented by Arthur Snell and produced and edited by Robin Lieber. Group editor is Andrew Harrison and our theme tune is by Paul Hartman. Doomsday Watch is a Podmasters production. <laughs>